As we think of the scripture for today, I want to remind you that Pastor Doug and Pastor John and myself uh, prayerfully considered how to organize uh, the messages from God's word so that we would understand more clearly what God would be saying to us. And when individuals do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody does the breaks or the topics exactly the same. And last week, Pastor Doug was speaking about elders and their role in leading the sheep and being uh, in charge of the flock. And part of what his message also was, our response is that is we should be humbly submitting to their authority. I want to back up and use part of uh, Pastor Doug's uh, scripture last week and bring it in with this week's because humility is so much at the midst of what we will be talking about today. So follow along, please, as I read from 1 Peter chapter 5, reading, uh, starting in the second half of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silas a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. If you don't know this, I'm very blessed to have a wife that shares a faith in God, that we worship and minister together, that we take time in God's word and we actually discuss it together. And this week we were talking about the prosperity gospel, that false gospel that truly is no gospel. And how in that, and we watched a couple of videos about it, how what it says is that God wants to give you the best of everything that he has. He wants to lift you up and really make something out of you. That's the prosperity gospel. In fact, it gets to the point where there has been a book written that says, your best life now. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But John MacArthur came back with a great line after that and said, 
If a person is talking to you that says this is their best life now, they must be going to hell because that can't be our best life. It's not about our life now. It's nothing about us. Pride swells up in us. And Peter is talking about exactly the opposite of that, humility. Peter writes about it. God reveals true humility in his word. So we should humble ourselves before God. Humble ourselves before God. Verses 5 through 7. Peter quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, that says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And then if we look again at God's word in James, he says and uses almost the same words and language. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 7 from James. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Almost the same words as what Peter has used. And the thought is the same. But how do we understand what is meant by humility and what is meant by pride? My thought on humility, if I had to sum it up, there's only one thing that I can really say is there's only been one perfect human example born on this earth of humility, and that's Jesus Christ. Everything about him and his life is humble. He left the throne of glory where angels and angelic beings worship and give praise and honor to God daily. He chose to leave that, to come to this earth, humble himself, be born as a man, and in complete submission to his Father, which is humility, go to the cross and die for sinful man. If you want a great example out of God's word of Christ's humility, mark down, go there sometime, remind yourselves with Isaiah 53, a great piece of scripture telling about the humility that Christ would endure. To better understand what humility is, I think we can look at the opposite, and that is pride. Here are some examples of God's word about pride. Being made much of in Matthew 23, verses 6 and 7. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greeting in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Being made much of. Jesus was pointing out the Pharisees were centered on that attention that would come to them because of what they did. And we have to understand, even when something is done and is noteworthy and, made, and we make mention of it to others, giving them congratulations for it, so easily 
Pride can come in and we can think so much more highly of ourselves than we should. But also pride opposes the existence of God. Psalm 10 verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. You cannot have humility unless you have something to be humble before, and that is God. Those that want to be pride, prideful cannot have anything above them. They do not want to have a God or somebody that they would answer to. Pride refuses to trust in God. Proverbs 28. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. We can be very self-sufficient. We can think that everything that we need to do or have can come by our own acts. And that refuses to show trust in God himself. But pride is anxious about the future. Isaiah 51. I, I am he who confronts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker. John Piper would say, Pride is the root of our anxiety. And this week while I was preparing for this message, I actually listened to the, a sermon that he did on verses 5 and 6 on humility and pride. And the, the four points that I have taken here are straight from his message. He had 10 in total. God's word is full of how pride can permeate everything of the sinful mind. But we have to understand exactly where he was taking us when he said pride is the root of anxiety because in our scripture it is saying that because of our own pride we do not want to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. We think that we can take care of every situation on our own. But we shouldn't look at God's mighty hand as that of something pressing down on us because of that judgment that may come upon us because of our sinful nature. That God somehow wants to keep us oppressed. No, that's not the hand that we're talking about. We're talking about the God of the universe that has no other authority or power over him. He is the one if we do not let pride get in our way, that we can count on to remove us from those anxieties and those times of suffering. And if you want to think about these things as incentives for humility, or as we have just got done in the study with John Owen, the rules for walking in fellowship, he would always say in one of his, uh, at the end of, each chapter, motivations. If you want motivations for humility, there was four of them mentioned by Peter. God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. 
His mighty hand will exalt the humble, and God's mighty hand will care for the humble. Peter and James both said that God opposes the proud, but he also believes, but he also warns us about the devil. Let's consider living as a Christian in spiritual conflict. He starts with instruction to us, and he said to be, be beware of the devil. And what he said in this scripture was be sober-minded and watchful. These are not things that we haven't heard before from Peter in this very lesson. In fact, this is the third time that he's actually reminded us. Chapter 1, verse 13, we were told to be preparing your minds, be sober-minded about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And in this one, this piece of scripture, be sober-minded, be watchful about your adversary, the devil. My friends, as Christians in this life, we cannot be on autopilot. We cannot be driving this Christian life and texting We have to be engaged. We have to be watching and being mindful that the devil is there. But what does Peter say about this devil that he's trying to call our attention to? He said he's a lion, lion, a roaring lion, walking around seeing who he can devour. Yes, we know that the devil has been said to be that crafty individual that can lead us astray through his lies. But Peter is saying, you have to watch out because this is a formidable foe. He's dangerous because he's strong, he's resourceful, and he's intent on devouring us. One of the commentators that I read said that if you want to understand what it means to devour God's word's got a great example. The great fish in Jonah. It consumed him. That's what the devil wants to do to us in our pride. And he can use our suffering and our lack of willingness to turn to God to obtain that objective. I want to tell you a story that I call the red alert. And I think there are those parts in our lives that give us some of our memorable times. It might be our days in high school. It might be when we were in college. It might be when we were first married. It might be military service. For me, this story comes from military service. In the time that I was in the service, I was also engaged in armed combat. And one of the things about that and this was uh, during the Vietnam War, is God has given us a mind that allows us to remember some of those things that are memorable and funny and put away those things that were not really that great. But this story, when I look back on it, I think is funny. About every three, four days, 
we as uh, individuals had to do whatever we did during the day, but we also then had to spend the night on the perimeter, making sure that everybody in back of us was safe, including ourselves. And that's one of the reasons for me that scripture that talks about the watchman on the watchtower, I know what that's like. And every night before you'd go out on guard duty, you'd have to go to a briefing. And they would give you the status of the night. Green and yellow said that the enemy danger was low. Red said that this was going to be a full alert. Nobody sleeps. Other times, half the people could sleep. Red alert, everyone was awake. And the reason for that, that day, a lion was sighted in our wire. It wasn't bad enough that we had human enemies. Now we had this t lion that we had to contend with. So we went out on the perimeter, and I had never seen a night where you didn't have to worry about anybody falling asleep. Everybody's eyes were wide open. And in the middle of the night, still nobody sleeping, nobody even thinking about it, to our left, maybe a couple hundred yards away, this huge explosion went off. I'd never seen one like it, and I never saw another one again, but we knew exactly what it was. It was called a fugas position. And what it was was two 55-gallon drums of napalm that were buried in the ground with sandbags around it. If you don't know what napalm is, it's a liquid flammable uh, substance that then has gelatin added to it so that when it sticks to you, you can't get it off. Terrible weapon. And then behind that were all of these uh, ordinances to project this out, way out in front, and make an explosion like I said, we were hundreds of yards away, and when this went off, we could feel a wave of heat go by us. And then it started on the radio. And somebody down in that bunker said, we think we saw the lion. We think we saw the lion. It wasn't even a confirmed sighting, but this guy was willing to blow the greatest piece of ordinance that you had at your disposal that we called a, uh, for only for use for human wave attacks. When you couldn't get the enemy any other way, you blew this uh, fugas position that covered probably a whole football field in fire. I'm thinking to myself, is this what Peter is telling us that we should be worried about in this lion? I think so. I don't want to think about what that soldier had to do to explain to the commander of the day that he could justify what he did. I don't think we want to have to justify to God that we weren't watching out for the enemy that he has said is roaring around like a lion, trying to see who he can devour. Beware of the devil, but also we should resist the devil with firm faith. Peter tells the devils of the devil's tactics in our defense. We will use, he will use suffering, 
uh, evil done because of being and following Christ himself. The suffering can come as fire, fiery trials, we're told. Insults, anxieties that come from these types of situations, and certainly in all of life, but it's because we are Christians in a sinful world. And if it hasn't happened to us yet, that we have come under these trials, Peter says, look around you. Your brothers might be in those trials today. And our defense against this is to resist him. And what do we have to resist? Our faith. Verse 9 says, firm in your faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. And it speaks about Abraham and how by faith he was willing to go to another region. By faith, Israel was willing to cross the Red Sea when the waters were parted. But then the author says in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, through God's grace, Faith has come to us as individuals. That faith is strengthened again by God's never-ending source of grace to, our, to us, perfecting our faith. God will intervene. We know that for certain. The devil, this one that we have said is dangerous that we have to watch for, is also limited in his power. But we serve the God that has the mighty right hand. Peter does not give instruction on spiritual warfare, but Paul does. Another note to put down, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. If you want to see and understand better spiritual warfare, read that scripture, and it points to putting on the whole armor of God himself. And lastly, under living as a Christian in spiritual conflict, God will restore after suffering. We as individuals like details. We like details in our lives to know what's going on. At least most of us do, I believe. And we would like this scripture to have it laid out exactly how all of these things are going to happen. But Peter only gives us one thing to look at. And he said the duration. And it said a little while. Not real clear as to what that means. In fact, in fact Wayne Grudem would say, an expression intentionally vague in the amount of time it implies. And I believe that this is the same as God speaking about end times. If he wanted us to know more about it, he would tell us. But all we have to do 
is trust in him through faith. Peter reminds believers, this and every other detail of the Christian's life is under the dominion forever and ever of the God of all grace. We should take great comfort in that because we see two of God's attributes at work in in this situation. And it is his unlimited grace. Not only is he the God that with his grace has called us out of darkness and given us salvation through the free gift of Christ himself, that great grace that saves sinners also continues to give grace to us, unlimited, that we continue to be able to call on him in the midst of suffering. Right now we're starting our next uh, study in community groups, and it's called The Habits of Grace by David Mathis. And that's exactly what it's doing, is trying to have us understand better the grace that comes to us from Christ himself. But not only unlimited grace, but also God has dominion. Not only the sovereignty of God, that he is involved, is in charge of every detail, every aspect of what happens in this universe and in individual lives. One of those little news stories that I see on my phone sometimes when, you're, when they're trying to get you to be in, engaged in um, what they have to offer for news said that the poles of the earth have shifted slightly. I didn't bother reading the article because I really don't care how much they shifted slightly because I believe that God is still in charge. And God of the universe knows exactly every movement of the sun and earth and moon and has dominion over them, but he has dominion over that same lion that we said to be watchful of and has put him in boundaries and he is already a defeated foe. But he is also of superior strength to anyone or anything, including the devil. God gives his uh, guarantee to restore us, to confirm, to strengthen, to establish us. This is Peter's words. And to sum it up, all that will be lost, has been lost, will soon be made right. God guarantees that. And he guarantees it for an eternity. Because whatever happens in this lifetime, in suffering, in eternity, not only will we be in his God's presence, but part of that great grace that we will receive because where Christ is and the glory and honor that is bestowed to him will also we will see and enjoy as his servants. My closing for this message is also part of the closing of Peter writing this book. And I would like us to understand as we look through the last verses that first of all, we should be thankful for those who we minister with and to us. Peter names two people 
brothers in Christ, Silas and Mark, and he tells in uh, limited words, but shows his affection for both. Mark he calls a son, much the same as Paul would call Timothy his son. But that relationship between those that know each other in Christ should be one of a bond of friendship, but also of family. But also Silas. We shouldn't be worried about understanding, was Silas the one that actually helped him write this letter, or was he the one that was to deliver it? How was that to come about? The debate still goes on. But we can understand that Peter had a great affection for him because they ministered together and were were an encouragement to each other. Also in the conclusion of Peter's letter, he gives a short summary of what exactly he has said. He is exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting is enough. That's just telling, but it has to be absorbed and understood. And what he has done through these pages is he has shown us in every trial, tribulation, from the beginning of our faith to the end, from the author through the finishing, Jesus Christ, his glory and grace has been upon sinful man. And he also wants to remind us Christians will be exiles in this world until he calls us home. He wants to make mention of those that are in Babylon. That's when uh, Christians were in exile under the leadership and control of people other than their own leaders. And they were not to be part of that. We are not to be part of this world. Yes, we are exiles here. And there is a call to genuine expression of love in Christ. A genuine expression. And what does he say? Greet one another with a kiss of love. I'm not saying that the back of the church should look like Richard Dawson on Family Feud. But somewhere along the line, if I did not get that semi-bear hug from my brother and friend in Christ, Gene Keezer, every Saturday, Sunday, I'd wonder, why is he mad at me? I think that we should show a true affection for each other. That we should see in each other the love that we have because of Christ first loving us. And lastly, we should understand there is no peace in this life, in our lives, unless it were to come from Christ himself. He is the peace that surpasses all understanding. Because we know that suffering in this world and anything to do is temporary, but our eternal home will be in the glory of Christ himself, that we have that peace in a time 
when this world seems to be so uncertain. And in the midst of trial of individual lives, that uncertainty at some times might be unbearable. But God gives us that gift of brothers and sisters in Christ to receive that love again and that support and help to get through those times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we are humbled before your majesty, that we are not so self-assured that when we think about your word and understand that we should cast every care, not only is it that we see that you are involved in every detail of our hearts and lives, but also, Lord, that quickly we come before you, that it is the first thing that we think of is that we come to you and say, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Do not allow pride in my own heart and life to think that there's, this is something that I should not come to you with. Lord, do not allow anxiety to be the devil's tool and that it preys upon our pride. Allow us again, Lord, to see your son as that example of humility, that we seek after him, that we see again the truth in your word, that we take and see the means of grace coming to us in the time that we spend not only in your word but before you in prayer. Equip us this day, and it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.